Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. K-12 grade teachers reported more than 3,000 hate incidents in schools during the fall 2018 semester. A new survey from the Southern Poverty Law Center has found that such incidents are underreported by media and often go undisciplined in schools. The SPLC's Teaching Tolerance Director Maureen Costello is on the line from Montgomery, Alabama with more on the report. Hello, Maureen. Hi, Virginia. More than 3,000 hate-related incidents in schools in the fall semester alone. How are those incidents defined? We define a hate or a bias incident as anything, any action, verbal, written, or physical, that targets somebody on the basis of their identity, particularly their group identity. So it could be a, uh, a swastika written on a wall. It could be the use of a racial slur, for instance. And some examples of those in schools, can you go through a few of those for us? Oh, sure. Well, swastikas are extremely common. They're often found on bathroom walls, but they often, they're also sometimes uh, inked on other students' arms, uh, presumably unwillingly. Uh, the use of the N-word, for instance, nooses hung as a joke somewhere, um, directed at Im- students perceived to be immigrants, uh, the build the wall chant or being told that they're going to be deported or that their parents are going to be deported, Muslim students being called terrorists or asked to uh, translate I will kill you into Arabic. Uh, These are the kinds of things that we're seeing. Now, where did you see most of them? Was it in particular grade levels or certain regions? It's across the United States. We saw them in all 50 states. Certainly, they get worse as you get into middle and high school, but it's not unusual to even see it in elementary school. So this is not just necessarily kids being kids or bullying others, but teachers are often targeted as well. Sadly, that's true. Well, teachers are targeted, and sometimes teachers are the uh, perpetrators as well. Um, There are a couple of stories from Georgia where teachers are the ones who... uh, basically suggested that uh, students would get into trouble because they're black, uh, that uh, sometimes you know, teachers are the problems as well, but particularly immigrant teachers, we've uh, been told, and Muslim teachers have been bullied, have been harassed uh, with the anti-immigrant language. So these numbers do come from a survey of teachers. This mm-hmm. is an unscientific report. So what is the process that you go through for verifying these kind of complaints? Well, first of all, we actually every month on a daily basis, we scour news reports for hate and bias incidents. And by the end of the year, we had counted 821 that were reported in the news alone. Um, we're very familiar with what goes on in schools, and our suspicion was that we were really seeing the tip of the iceberg. So we decided to do a survey just really to kind of test that hypothesis. Are there more stories out there than are being reported in the news? And so the survey, as you point out, was a very uh, informal survey. I sometimes just call it a questionnaire. And we sent it in December, which, by the way, is not the best time to ask teachers uh, because the holidays are approaching and and they're usually trying to wrap things up. But we did uh, get a lot of responses back. We 
did not necessarily verify them because people were assured of anonymity, and we did ask them to describe the incidents. The incidents that they described have a really depressing familiarity. Many of them are very, very similar. Um, so really we're looking at many more than 3,000. We're looking at closer to 4,000 when you consider that we're also including the ones that were reported in the news. Well, right. So the gap there between 821 that you found in the news and more than 3,000, how do you explain that difference? Well, the fact is that most of them don't get reported in the news. And that's part of a long cycle that, first of all, does do school leaders even do anything about them at all? Um, the gamut of responses that teachers told us was that administrators either do nothing or they, they take a whole set of responses to address school climate. But schools like to take care of you know, things within schools. They don't necessarily, their first thought of the school principal is not to call the media. Mm -hmm. and they they try to take care of things. And they're also, of course, respectful of student privacy. So there's a lot of complicating factors. The point we wanted to make, though, is that you know parents and members of school communities need to know what kids in schools are being exposed to. Right. Well, but when you say that this is not getting media coverage, what kinds of infractions were usually reported outside of schools in the past? What generally gets reported are often things that go out on social media. So once something is kind of out in the community, <coughs> excuse me, it gets covered. Uh, the other thing is something that is particularly egregious, like a noose, for instance, will often get covered. Right now, there's a series of promposals that have been covered. I think we saw three of them this month. They're all exactly the same, by the way, and I'm going to repeat them, and I apologize in advance. Can, can you also explain what a promposal is? Excuse me, a prom proposal is a proposal to go to prom. And sometimes it's done on social media or it's done in a public way, much as engagements are now happening in public ways. So one that uh, we've seen three stories of is a white male holding up a sign that says, if I were black, I'd be picking cotton, but I'm white, so I'm picking you for prom. Mm. Wow. And, you know, so it's that kind of story that gets out there, it's out on social media, it's out in the world, it's usually racist or it's anti-Semitic. Those are the ones that are most likely to be covered. Well, what kinds of things are you, you know, how are they dealing with kids? I mean, that has to be a pretty painful, isolating thing to experience for a kid. I would think so, too. And it's it's not just a kid, it's the entire community. I mean, that's the what we often don't grasp, that these really have ripple effects, and not just ripple effects of everybody who feels like I could have been the target of that, but all the other kids who are standing by and not feeling good about it at all and wishing that they could have done something. In other words, the would-be bystanders. Um, what can you do about it? Well, the important thing really, it's not necessarily punishment. I mean, discipline is often important, but these are teachable moments, first of all, for the individuals who are doing them, because a lot of the time, they, there's ignorance involved. But the other is to have a kind of holistic approach towards the school climate and realize we need a healthy school climate. There should be a place where people are happy to come. They're happy to come to learn. Students are happy to come to learn. And teachers and staff and cafeteria workers, everyone else is happy to come and work here. 
And so it's really necessary to have some very intentional dialogue about what it means to live and work in a place where everyone is respected. I'm speaking with Maureen Costello, Director of Teaching Tolerance. That's a program of the Southern Poverty Law Center, and we're discussing its new report based on a survey from teachers on hate crimes in schools. You know, we didn't really talk very much about how educators and school leaders have responded to these kind of incidents. What kind of disciplinary actions are taken? And and is, that, is, is there any correlation between the disciplinary action and the kind of incidents or who's targeted? Well, there is a corollary, first of all. We find that there are certain incidents that are much more likely to result in some action, uh, and those generally tend to be um, racist incidents. Uh, And then there are some that are very unlikely, and those tend to be the anti-immigrant or anti-LGBTQ. I can't say specifically why that is. We didn't really test, but my suspicion is that um, sometimes the anti-immigrant or the uh, anti-gay harassment reflects some kinds of values of the community. Hmm. Um, So that's part of it. The the second thing is what should be done. Discipline certainly is not inappropriate, but it, it should never be the only answer. It's really important for school leaders to look at one incident and say, wait a minute, is this only one incident or is there more here? What kind of a culture do we have at that school, at the school, which means communicating with parents, communicating with students, communicating with community, having an open door and listening and really asking students, are you comfortable here? Is this a place where you feel safe to be you? So there's really a lot of steps that uh, school leaders can take, including having uh, clubs and after-school activities that include safe spaces for students of who may not represent the dominant group. Uh, for instance, GSAs, uh, which are gender and sexuality uh, alliances. Um, there's a lot of ways to do this, but the important thing is to see it as a whole school issue, not simply a discipline issue. Well, beyond the school, the culture that three years ago, the SPLC documented a significant increase in incidents involving racism and bigotry, which the SPLC called the Trump effect. So what kind of evidence connects hate incidents in schools to the president and his administration? Sadly, a lot of it is the language that's used, and particularly we see that uh, in the anti-immigrant language. Uh, The president's own words are used to target uh, children who are perceived to be immigrants. And by the way, they they often are not, uh, but it hardly matters. The president's words are used so that at the time of the caravan, for instance, teachers reported that there was an increase in in anti-immigrant targeting. But the other part is that the president's name itself is used. So Um, they invoke his name. Yes. Is this something that was tracked before the 2018 election? Uh, Well, we checked in 2016. Um, But no, this is, you know, I've been in education for 40 years, and uh, I cannot remember, and I taught for 20 of those years, and I cannot remember a political figure influencing um, this kind of negative behavior before. School climate also has not really been well documented prior to this on a national level, Right now, more people are doing it. Uh, The Southern Poverty Law Center is looking at it. uh, UCLA has issued two reports uh, documenting 
how classroom discussions have been eroded because of uh, just political polarization. And there has been a number of other reports as well. Well, so you're, uh, I do want to note here that the SPLC is currently under review after allegations of a toxic workplace environment that discriminates against women and people of color there. Last month resulted in the firing of the co-founder and resignations, longtime president, legal director, both gone. So you know, you know, how organizations and how cultures can develop and how you can deal with and do things differently. But you are trying to teach other people, including in schools how to teach tolerance. How is your organization dealing with its own culture of discrimination? Well, we are facing it head on, and that is that is something that every organization needs to do, which is say, wait a minute, let's listen to our employees, our staff, in the case of school, our students. And we are taking steps to uh, see what, what went wrong and what we can do better. So how do you advise teachers and educators to do that kind of work now? In exactly the same way. We think that school leaders need to have, for instance, office hours, open door policies, so that students can come in and talk about what is going on in school. We think that there need to be school climate surveys that go out not just to students, but also to parents and to teachers, and that those results should be looked at uh, for the gaps. In other words, do teachers perceive school climate one way, but students perceive it another way? Or does one group of students perceive it differently than others? Um, there should be directions to the school leadership, meaning teachers and staff, about ways to make sure that schools are welcoming, which is sometimes as simple as standing at a door and greeting every student by name as they come in to your class. Um, affinity groups especially in a school where perhaps you have a large number of minority groups, let's say, uh, whether they're racial groups or religious groups or whatever, these students should have an opportunity to be able to meet with each other. Maureen, so I'm going to have to leave it right there, but I thank you for your time. Teaching Tolerance Director Maureen Costello, thanks for, very much. Thanks, Virginia. So stay with us for a portrait of Ernie Meichler, author of The White Trash Cookbook, When On Second Thought Continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. With recipes for broiled squirrel, baked possum, and myriad uses for Cool Whip, Ernest Matthew Meichler's White Trash Cooking was released in 1986 to mixed reviews. Was it a sociological study, the campy gimmick, or just another elitist dig at poor Southerners? Michael Adno's profile of the writer and photographer known as Ernie Meichler portrays a man who took pride in his disappearing Southern heritage and in the food served by his Florida relatives and neighbors, the very people he felt rejected by as a gay man. Michael is on the line from Florida to talk about the complex, talented man he discovered while writing this year's James Beard award-winning profile, The Short and Brilliant Life of Ernest Matthew Meichler, and it was published by The Bitter Southerner. Hello, Michael. Hey, Virginia. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? Well, thank you for joining us from Florida, where Ernie Meichler grew up, but, but it was a different Florida then. Where and what was the Florida of Ernie Meichler's youth? Well, he grew up in a place called Palm Valley, which is just south of uh, Jacksonville Beach. It's kind of sandwiched between what is the intercoastal waterway and the Atlantic. And when he grew up there, it was, as he described it, just a you know palm cabbage swamp, which it really was. Today, it's kind of hemmed in by 
a number of preserves, but otherwise, if you were to drive through it, I don't think you'd recognize it because it would just be golf courses and cookie-cutter neighborhoods. Um, they call it Ponte Vedra Beach now. Well, he's a man of many talents. He played country music with Helen Petey Piquette, got an MFA at a predominantly women's college in California. What kinds of impressions did you get of him from the people who knew him growing up? You know, I think the the one thing that always stuck with me is, you know, Petey Pickett, who was one of his best friends and grew up with him there in Palm Valley, she always told me that Ernie didn't wait until Friday to have a good time. So, you know, whether you were, you know, whether you were with him on Tuesday afternoon or on Saturday night, I mean, he was just always getting into something and, you know, he was just the life of the party. I mean, she told me he glowed in the dark and anytime he came into a room, people's heads would turn and that charisma, I think. You see it in all his work, his photographs, his writing, his storytelling, his music. And so I think just charisma was the thing that he brought everywhere with him. Well, he was a, a photographer. He was a writer. He he said of, of himself, I'm good at writing cracker. And he, yeah. he got this idea for the White Trash Cookbook with a group of friends. And he explains in the introduction of the cookbook, white trash was something to be proud of. And he distinguishes it, the uppercase and lowercase white trash. What's the difference there? Well, as he wrote, he said manners and pride separate the two. And I think, you know, it didn't just pertain to poor white people who grew up in the South, but to anyone who came from a place that was made to feel like they didn't belong. You know, whether that was you lived in Manhattan and you were from New Jersey, or you were from South Florida and people told you you weren't Southern, or, you know, you grew up in North Louisiana and didn't fit in, in, you know, New Orleans. Um, And I think he, he really sung that praise. And for him, he was a gay man from the South and from a particularly homophobic part of the South. I mean, his, his brothers at one point, you know, wouldn't speak to him when they found out he was gay. And I think that, you know, when when he started working on this cookbook, whether or not he was aware of it, it was this kind of significant move to just say that, you know, no matter where you're from and what you are, you should be proud of it. And for him, it was, you know, being white trash and being from this place that a lot of people made fun of, whether he was in San Francisco or Key West, New York, or even New Orleans. Well, when he was going to school, he got his MFA, as I said, in Mill, uh, what Mill College. I can't remember the name mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, in, yeah, Mill College in, yeah. in Oakland. But you know, dressed up flamboyantly in this crazy kind of outfit with wings for his graduation. Um, a, a little bit of a performer, certainly. Yeah. But was there? I don't know. Was there the subversive in him? Was he white, writing this white trash cookbook uh, as a way of? poking fun at his heritage. What's your sense of that? I think so. I mean, I think you see, like, he did an interview with a close friend of his just a month before he died, which was in 1988. And, um, you know, they talk a lot about these these tropes of the South um, and pride and heritage and all these things. And the person he did the interview with was from a, a similar area. And, you know, they, they poked fun at a lot of it. And I think that if you look at white trash cooking as a serious, you know, kind of document or sociological or folklore, you know, just an anthology, I think what you see is that humor is this really, really compelling way to disarm a reader and make them think more seriously about something that if you were to do it in an academic way, I mean, you would never be able to get them to sit down at the table. So I think that anyone comes to this book and 
you know, a smile stretches across their face and they can consider some of the things in there that they otherwise wouldn't because, you know, before the book was published, I mean, people were incredibly offended by the idea of it. I mean, that there would be a book called White Trash Cooking and that you would even use the term white trash or, you know, as he said, he was good at writing cracker. I mean, to use any of those things, I mean, they were just they were just abhorrent. I mean, people were not interested in talking about those things. Whereas now, you know, more than 30 years later, it seems like we're a little bit more comfortable talking about those things. And I think in part, thanks to Ernie Meichler. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we've heard from people who say that, well, white trash is the last kind of socioeconomic group that you can still make fun of, you know, that we're still at the bottom of the pool in that way. So, you know, the people are punching down on some level. Do you think that's true? Yeah. I mean, I think that white trash in itself, when it's used in a derogatory term, is is not just offensive because it's this epithet, but I think it's offensive because of what it, like, I want to say tacitly implies, but it explicitly implies that, like, you know, if you're not white, then you are what follows that word. And so I I think it's a little strange when we talk about it today because I'm not sure what people mean when they mean white trash. I think they mean rednecks, poor people, people from the South, maybe more generally people who are uneducated. And uh, I think that we're seeing, you know, a little bit, I wouldn't call it a pushback, but there's this kind of, you know, this political atmosphere. And I think that a lot of people think of the other as maybe white trash or people who elected someone they didn't agree with. And they see that as white trash. And I think it's just easy to generalize and see this, this whole group of people that you don't otherwise know as just simply white trash. I mean, it's just a really easy way to, to diminish them. How was the book White Trash Cooking, released in the Reagan 1980s. How was it received? Well, um, you know, when they were when Ernie was trying to sell the book, I mean, you know, publishers wouldn't touch it. Um, the New Yorker, after it was published, they rejected an advertisement for it. They sent the money back. Um, they said it but, would offend their readers. Yes, yes. And Otherwise, I mean, it was deemed one of the most interesting cookbooks of the spring 1986 cookbook season. Um, Harper Lee loved the book. There were, I mean, glowing commendations from tons of people. And today when you ask, I mean, if you ask William Eggleston's son, Winston, the book is in the house. If you ask, you know, uh, famous Southerners, if you ask people in New York City, culinary greats, um, great writers, you know, they know this book, um, and editors and, and, and very, you know, famous people know this book. I mean, it's made its way around. Um, and I think that stands testament to how endearing and important the book was. And I mean, it's, it hasn't lost its, I think, importance or its significance. It, it seems to really almost stand up just as much as it did today, as it did, like you said, under Reagan in 1986, but um, it, it had mixed reviews. I mean, some people loved it, and of course, some people absolutely hated it, but it it also spanned the North to the South, the rich to the poor, and it was a really interesting cross-section of the South. So let's hear this. We spoke to John T. Edge about this book previously on On Second Thought. Here he is referring to Harper Lee's quote about white trash cooking. I've never seen a sociological document of such beauty. 
we've long needed something other than the ballot box to remind us of their presence, meaning white trash folk. White trash cooking is a beautiful testament to a stubborn people of proud and poignant heritage. I'm speaking with the writer-photographer and now James Beard Award winner, Michael Adnow. And we're talking about Ernest Matthew Meichler's White Trash Cooking. Michael wrote an award-winning uh, profile of, of Meichler, Ernest Michael Matthew Meichler, for The Bitter Southerner. So let's talk about that a little bit. You mentioned w- William Eggleston, and for people who may not know him, he was a photographer who really sort of picked up the work of documenting the South. You also compare Michler to Zora Neale Hurston, who was study- doing an anthropological study of the, how- of the South and really picked up and documented a lot of the vernacular. Do you think that that was what Michler was actually trying to do? I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, when I spent all this time with his papers, which is really impressive because they're they're just as he left them when he died, um, you see all the other projects that he was working on, the photographs that he was making, the stories he was, you know, trying to turn into fiction. And I think that from what I can tell, from the people that he knew and spoke to, he knew of those those people's work and you know even reference them and you see it very clearly in his work i mean the dialect that he refers to as writing cracker i mean is similar to zora neale hurston writing the dialect of the places that she grew up and knew in the south and specifically in florida and with eggleston i mean you just when you look at compositions of ernie michaelers photographs i mean it's unmistakable that he was looking at eggleston and kristen berry uh, walker evans uh, Clarence John Lachlan, a lot of these kind of Southern photographers that at the time were heralded. So I think he was trying to follow in the footsteps of those authors and, and artists. Well, this was a guy who was kind of held up as a buffoon. I mean, he was on David Letterman to cook chicken feet and rice, you know, mm-hmm. used as the butt of a, a joke, certainly. Do you think he was kind of, I don't know, playing that role on some kind of level to mess with people? You know, I don't think he was. I think that he I think he played along. I mean, I think he was real sweet, but I think you saw after after the book had come out and he'd done some of those TV spots and radio interviews. I mean, I think he he did feel offended. Uh he he felt hurt that there was still this idea that southerners were uneducated and and, you know, unthoughtful, um which which really bothered him because he knew a different south. And I think that while he was very funny and there was always an air of levity everywhere he went, I think that it did offend him when he was on a TV show like that and made fun of, or mm-hmm. when when people would receive his work in a way that he didn't see as, as meaningful, ultimately. Well, and after the success of White Trash Cooking, he did come out and write another book that was published shortly before he died. What, what Was he continuing that work? What was he doing with this next book? I think the next book was more specific. I mean, it really, it was this collection of recipes that pertained really just to where he was from. And where he's from is right at the north end of St. John's County, which is this really interesting study in contrast to Florida, because each mile that you drive, the area of it changes very much. And in it, what he did is he, instead of separating the book between meats and vegetables or desserts, they were tied to different events that he grew up with, which, for example, could be baptisms or, you know, when they would when they would clean a hog or funerals, wakes, um, quilting parties. And then each section he wrote 
kind of a short story that would give you the atmosphere of the section. And uh, in that, you start to see where he was headed with his fiction writing um, and these characters that he painted, which when you study his life, you see that these are characters that he knew, I mean, based upon his mother or close friends or conversations that he overheard the same way that many other writers have. But this book, I just felt was more mature. I mean, it seemed like it was more aware of itself. uh, There were more photographs in it. It it just really, you know, it, it had more of a sense of how you could use that that model of an anthology to communicate something. And uh, it was published a day before, well, the day that it hit bookshelves, he, he died. Um, so as soon as people were able to pick it up, he, he had died. But he did see advanced copies of it, and he did sign them. Um, when he was still in the hospital, he signed a copy for one of his closest friends, Calvin Yeomans, um, and he signed it as, because Bernie Meichler did die of AIDS. And mm-hmm. just before he died, he wrote to Calvin Yeomans, we'll figure it out someday. Yeah. So this is a man who, like many gay men in the 70s, 80s, and before that, left his hometown in Florida. And people have left hometowns all over the United States, many, many, many in the South. You say that he is a portal to the South. His work is... Is there any revelation there of who he was as a gay man in the South? I think I think that the South, for a lot of us who have done that, and I'm someone who has done that, who has left and returned and, and laid my claim to it. I'm also a first-generation American, so it was even harder, whereas he came from this long line of people who had, who had settled here and even were pioneers here. But for for him, I think the South made him more aware of who he wanted to be and made him feel more himself. I mean, he, he felt like he belonged here. And I think that all of his work was about really staking a claim to that and carving out that real estate to say, you know, whether or not you accept me, I belong here. This is my place. And I care about it. Um, And living in San Francisco and in New Orleans and visiting fire Island and London and Mexico and all the places, including Key West, um, you know, I think after a while, he just he wanted to be home in, in the landscape that he knew. And um, as he said, you know, it was gentle on his head is the way that he put it. Well, Michael Adna, thank you for giving us this portrait of Ernie Meichler. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, Virginia. That is the writer and photographer and now James Beard Award winner, Michael Adnow. You can find a link to read his profile of Ernie Meichler at gpbnews.org. Some feedback on last week. We spoke with Macon and Atlanta leaders in response to the claim that the United States is full. On Facebook, David Cartwright said, If we were full, I wouldn't have got out of a martyr train at Peachtree Center around 1 p.m. on Easter Sunday to find the actual Peachtree Center empty. About 90% of its restaurants, including the big chain coffee shop, closed. In New York, Chicago, D.C., San Francisco, or any other similarly sized city to Atlanta, anywhere else in the world, it would have been bustling and packed with people. You can chime in with your own part of the conversation on anything that we do here. Our Facebook group is GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. Coming up, we're going to learn about the origins of the mint julep. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought.
From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. With recipes for broiled squirrel, baked possum, and myriad uses for Cool Whip, Ernest Matthew Meichler's White Trash Cooking was released in 1986 to mixed reviews. Was it a sociological study, that campy gimmick, or just another elitist dig at poor Southerners? Michael Adno's profile of the writer and photographer known as Ernie Meichler portrays a man who took pride in his disappearing Southern heritage and in the food served by his Florida relatives and neighbors, the very people he felt rejected by as a gay man. Michael is on the line from Florida to talk about the complex, talented man he discovered while writing this year's James Beard award-winning profile, The Short and Brilliant Life of Ernest Matthew Meichler, and it was published by The Bitter Southerner. Hello, Michael. Hey, Virginia. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? Well, thank you for joining us from Florida, where Ernie Meichler grew up, but but it was a different Florida then. Where and what was the Florida of Ernie Meichler's youth? Well, he grew up in a place called Palm Valley, which is just south of uh, Jacksonville Beach. It's kind of sandwiched between what is the Intracoastal Waterway and the Atlantic. And when he grew up there, it was as he described it, just a you know palm cabbage swamp, which it really was. Today, it's kind of hemmed in by a number of preserves. But otherwise, if you were to drive through it, I don't think you'd recognize it because it would just be golf courses and cookie-cutter neighborhoods. Um, they call it Ponte Vedra Beach now. Well, he's a man of many talents. He played country music with Helen Petey Pickett, got an MFA at a predominantly women's college in California. What kinds of impressions did you get of him from the people who knew him growing up? You know, I think the the one thing that always stuck with me is, you know, Petey Pickett, who was one of his best friends and grew up with him there in Palm Valley, is, she always told me that Ernie didn't wait until Friday to have a good time. So, hmm. you know, whether you were, you know, whether you were with him on Tuesday afternoon or on Saturday night, I mean, he was just always getting into something and, you know, he was just the life of the party. I mean, she told me he glowed in the dark and anytime he came into a room, people's heads would turn and that charisma, I think, you see it in all his work, his photographs, his writing, his storytelling, his music. And so I think just charisma was the thing that he brought everywhere with him. Well, he was a, a photographer. He was a writer. He he said of, of himself, I'm good at writing cracker. And he, yeah. he got this idea for the White Trash Cookbook with a group of friends. And he explains in the introduction of the cookbook, white trash was something to be proud of. And he distinguishes it, the uppercase and lowercase white trash. What's the difference there? Well, as he wrote, he said manners and pride separate the two. And I think, you know, it didn't just pertain to poor white people who grew up in the South, but to anyone who came from a place that was made to feel like they didn't belong. You know, whether that was you lived in Manhattan and you were from New Jersey, or you were from South Florida and people told you you weren't Southern, or, you know, you grew up in North Louisiana and didn't fit in, in you know, New Orleans. Um, and I think he he really sung that praise. And for him, he was a gay man from the South and from a particularly homophobic part of the South. I mean, his his brothers at one point, you know, wouldn't speak to him when they found out he was gay. And I think that, you know, when when he started working on this cookbook, whether or not he was aware of it, it was this kind of significant move to just say that, you know, no matter where you're from and what you are, you should be proud of it. And for him, it was, you know, being white trash and being from this place that a lot of people made fun of, whether he was in San Francisco or Key West, New York, or even New Orleans. 
Well, when he was going to school, he got his MFA, as I said, in Mill, uh, what, Mill College? I can't remember the name mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, in, yeah Mill College. In, yeah. in Oakland. But, you know, dressed up flamboyantly in this crazy kind of outfit with wings for his graduation. Um, a, a little bit of a performer, certainly. Yeah. But was there, I don't know, was there the subversive in him? Was he white, writing this white trash cookbook uh, as a way of poking fun at his heritage. What's your sense of that? I think so. I mean, I think you see, like, he did an interview with a close friend of his just a month before he died, which was in 1988. And, um, you know, they talk a lot about these these tropes of the South um, and pride and heritage and all these things. And the person he did the interview with was from a, a similar area. And, you know, they, they poked fun at a lot of it. And I think that if you look at white trash cooking as a serious, you know, kind of document or sociological or folklore, you know, just an anthology, I think what you see is that humor is this really, really compelling way to disarm a reader and make them think more seriously about something that if you were to do it in an academic way, I mean, you would never be able to get them to sit down at the table. So I think that anyone comes to this book and you know, a smile stretches across their face and they can consider some of the things in there that they otherwise wouldn't because, you know, before the book was published, I mean, people were incredibly offended by the idea of it. I mean, that there would be a book called White Trash Cooking and that you would even use the term white trash or, you know, as he said, he was good at writing cracker. I mean, to use any of those things, I mean, they were just they were just abhorrent. I mean, people were not interested in talking about those things, whereas now, you know, more than 30 years later, it seems like we're a little bit more comfortable talking about those things. And I think in part, thanks to Ernie Meichler. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we've heard from people who say that, well, white trash is the last kind of socioeconomic group that you can still make fun of, you know, that we're still at the bottom of the pool in that way. So, you know, the people are punching down on some level. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I mean, I think that white trash in itself, when it's used in a derogatory term, is is not just offensive because it's this epithet, but I think it's offensive because of what it, like, I, I want to say tacitly implies, but it explicitly implies that, like, you know, if you're not white, then you are what follows that word. And so I, I think it's a little strange when we talk about it today because I'm not sure what people mean when they mean white trash. I think they mean rednecks, poor people, people from the South, maybe more generally people who are uneducated. And uh, I think that we're seeing, you know, a little bit, I wouldn't call it a pushback, but there's this kind of, you know, this political atmosphere. And I think that a lot of people think of the other as maybe white trash or people who elected someone they didn't agree with, and they see that as white trash. And I think it's just easy to generalize and see this this whole group of people that you don't otherwise know as just simply white trash. I mean, it's just a really easy way to to diminish them. How was the book White Trash Cooking released in the Reagan 1980s? How was it received? Well, um, you know, when they were when Ernie was trying to sell the book, I mean, you know, publishers wouldn't touch it. Um, the New Yorker, after it was published, they rejected an advertisement for it. They sent the money back. Um, they said it but, would offend their readers. Yes, yes. And, 
otherwise, I mean, it was deemed one of the most interesting cookbooks of the spring 1986 cookbook season. Um, Harper Lee loved the book. There were, I mean, glowing com- commendations from tons of people. And today when you ask, I mean, if you ask William Eggleston's son, Winston, the book is in the house. If you ask, you know, uh, famous Southerners, if you ask people in New York City, culinary greats, um, great writers, you know, they know this book. Um, and editors and, and, and very, you know, famous people know this book. I mean, it's made its way around. Um, and I think that stands testament to how endearing and important the book was. And I mean, it's it hasn't lost its I think importance or its significance. It seems to really almost stand up just as much as it did today as it did, like you said, under Reagan in 1986. But um, it, it had mixed reviews. I mean, some people loved it, and of course, some people absolutely hated it. But it it also spanned the north to the south, the rich to the poor, and it was a really interesting cross section of the South. So let's hear this. We spoke to John T. Edge about this book previously on On Second Thought. Here he is referring to Harper Lee's quote about white trash cooking. I've never seen a sociological document of such beauty. We've long needed something other than the ballot box to remind us of their presence, meaning white trash folk. White trash cooking is a beautiful testament to a stubborn people of proud and poignant heritage. I'm speaking with the writer-photographer and now James Beard Award winner, Michael Adno, and we're, talk- we're talking about Ernest Matthew Meichler's White Trash Cooking. Michael wrote an award-winning uh, profile of, of Meichler, Ernest Michael Matthew Meichler, for The Bitter Southerner. So let's talk about that a little bit. You mentioned w- William Eggleston, and for people who may not know him, he was a photographer who really sort of picked up the work of documenting the South. You also compare Michler to Zora Neale Hurston, who was study- doing an anthropological study of the, ho- of the South and really picked up and documented a lot of the vernacular. Do you think that that was what Michler was actually trying to do? I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, when I spent all this time with his papers, which is really impressive because they're they're just as he left them when he died, um, you see all the other projects that he was working on, the photographs that he was making, the stories he was, you know, trying to turn into fiction. And I think that from what I can tell, from the people that he knew and spoke to, he knew of those those people's work and, you know, even reference them. And you see it very clearly in his work. I mean, the dialect that he refers to as writing cracker, I mean, is similar to Zora Neale Hurston writing the dialect of the places that she grew up and knew in the South and specifically in Florida. And with Eggleton, I mean, you just, when you look at compositions of Ernie Michaelers photographs, I mean, it's unmistakable that he was looking at Eggleston and Kristen Berry, uh, Walker Evans, Uh, Clarence John Lachlan, a lot of these kind of Southern photographers that at the time were heralded. So I think he was trying to follow in the footsteps of those authors and and artists. Well, this was a guy who was kind of held up as a buffoon. I mean, he was on David Letterman to cook chicken feet and rice, you know, Mm -hmm. used as the butt of a, a joke, certainly. Do you think he was kind of, I don't know, playing that role on some kind of level to mess with people? You know, I don't think he was. I think that he I think he played along. I mean, I think he was real sweet, but I think you saw after 
after the book had come out and he'd done some of those TV spots and radio interviews, I mean, I think he, he did feel offended. Uh, he, he felt hurt that there was still this idea that Southerners were uneducated and, and you know, unthoughtful, um, which, which really bothered him because he knew a different South. And I think that while he was very funny and there was always an air of levity everywhere he went, I think that it did offend him when he was on a TV show like that and made fun of, or mm-hmm. when, when people would receive his work in a way that he didn't see as, as meaningful, ultimately. Well, and after the success of White Trash Cooking, he did come out and write another book that was published shortly before he died. What, what Was he continuing that work? What was he doing with this next book? I think the next book was more specific. I mean, it really, it was this collection of recipes that pertained really just to where he was from. And where he's from is right at the north end of St. John's County, which is this really interesting study in contrast to Florida, because each mile that you drive, the area of it changes very much. And in it, what he did is he, instead of separating the book between meats and vegetables or desserts, they were tied to different events that he grew up with, which, for example, could be baptisms or, you know, when they would when they would clean a hog or funerals, wakes, um, quilting parties. And then each section, he wrote kind of a short story that would give you the atmosphere of the section. And uh, in that, you start to see where he was headed with his fiction writing um, and these characters that he painted, which when you study his life, you see that these are characters that he knew, I mean, based upon his mother or close friends or conversations that he overheard the same way that many other writers have. But this book, I just felt was more mature. I mean, it seemed like it was more aware of itself. uh, There were more photographs in it. It, it just really, you know, it, it had more of a sense of how you could use that, that model of an anthology to communicate something. And uh, it was published a day before, well, the day that it hit bookshelves, he, he died. Um, so as soon as people were able to pick it up, he, he had died. But he did see advanced copies of it, and he did sign them. Um, when he was still in the hospital, he signed a copy for one of his closest friends, Calvin Yeomans, um, and he signed it as, because Bernie Meichler did die of AIDS. And mm-hmm. just before he died, he wrote to Calvin Yeomans, we'll figure it out someday. Yeah, so this is a man who, like many gay men in the 70s, 80s, and before that, left his hometown in Florida, and people have left hometowns all over the United States, many, many, many in the South. You say that he is a portal to the South. His work is. Is there any revelation there of who he was as a gay man in the South? I think I think that... The South, for a lot of us who have done that, and I'm someone who has done that, who has left and returned and, and laid my claim to it. I'm also a first-generation American, so it was even harder, whereas he came from this long line of people who had who had settled here and even were pioneers here. But for for him, I think the South made him more aware of who he wanted to be and made him feel more himself. I mean, he... He felt like he belonged here, and I think that all of his work was about really staking a claim to that and carving out that real estate to say, you know, whether or not you accept me, I belong here, this is my place, and I care about it. Um, And living in San Francisco and in New Orleans and visiting Fire Island and London and Mexico and all the places, including Key West, um, you know, I think 
after a while, he just he wanted to be home in, in the landscape that he knew. And um, as he said, you know, it was gentle on his head is the way that he put it. Well, Michael Adna, thank you for giving us this portrait of Ernie Meichler. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, Virginia. That is the writer and photographer and now James Beard Award winner, Michael Adnow. You can find a link to read his profile of Ernie Meichler at gpbnews.org. Some feedback on last week. We spoke with Macon and Atlanta leaders in response to the claim that the United States is full. On Facebook, David Cartwright said, If we were full, I wouldn't have got out of a martyr train at Peachtree Center around 1 p.m. on Easter Sunday to find the actual Peachtree Center empty. About 90% of its restaurants, including the big chain coffee shop, closed. In New York, Chicago, D.C., San Francisco, or any other similarly sized city to Atlanta, anywhere else in the world, it would have been bustling and packed with people. You can chime in with your own part of the conversation on anything that we do here. Our Facebook group is GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. Coming up, we're going to learn about the origins of the mint julep. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.